But you generally, when you're not getting satisfying answers in the conventional world, take yourself out to the world of the wackadoodles like me, because they're the ones who are going to actually explore with you. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey guys, just a quick note on today's episode. We are actually bringing you a previously aired interview with Dr. Ellen Vora, who is a great friend of the pod and a holistic psychiatrist. Uh, This was recorded before the pandemic. And we thought that in light of the holiday season and uh, just general heightened sense of stress and concern for many people, mental health awareness is more important now than ever. And we wanted to bring you this episode once again. Uh, Thanks again for listening and uh, new episodes to come real soon. We love giving you ad-free episodes, but you're going to have to listen to this one real quick. Because this episode is brought to you by us. Yes, our brand new brand, Earth and Star, is taking your daily habits like cold brew and matcha and elevating them with adaptogens to give you some ridiculously healthy benefits. Benefits such as cognitive function, calm, stamina, and a huge boost to your immune system, which I think we can agree we all need right now. Our super convenient, ready-to-drink lattes are 100% certified organic and plant-based made with, what else? Rothy oat milk. Is there any other kind of oat milk today? I don't think so. No packets or tubs or clumpy, weird powder that no matter how much you try to mix it, it never seems to dissolve. Just a delicious little can of magic. We've got all the flavors. We've got cold brew coffee, matcha, turmeric, cacao, which is basically adult chocolate milk. And we are adding 2,000 milligrams, that is no small dose, of functional mushroom extracts like lion's mane and chaga to basically upgrade your everyday habit into a kick-ass functional latte. Kick-ass. Kick-ass. Available at earthandstar.com. Take 15% off with the code HTW at checkout. Earth and Star Mushroom Lattes. Amazing taste. Healthy as sh- Uh, well, welcome, Dr. Ellen Bora. Thank you so much. Nice to have you here. Yeah. It's great to be here. <laughs> Holistic psychiatrist. Is that what the, the heck that even means? Is that that's like what you is that what you go with? That's what I say. So, holistic psychiatrist. Yeah. So, how what how did that come to be, and what does that actually entail? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty much a made up term. But uh, I trained in the conventional path. I went to medical school. I went through psychiatry residency, but then. Throughout that process, I felt completely out of alignment with the way psychiatry is being practiced. It's like someone comes into your office, they have such and such symptoms, you're supposed to 
convert that into a diagnosis and translate that diagnosis to a medication. And then when they come back and say, it's not working, you increase the dose. When they say they have side effects, you add another medication mm. to taste, chase the tail of the side effect from the other medication. And it just goes on and on and on until you're layering on so many medications. And I never really saw that I was helping someone achieve a state of overall well-being. Sometimes we were doing a decent job of suppressing symptoms enough that that looks like it's helping. Um, it can help in certain situations, but it wasn't satisfying. Uh, so in order to just feel like I wanted to get out of bed in the morning, I had to start pursuing modalities that felt true for me. So I started studying Chinese medicine and acupuncture, Ayurveda, functional medicine, nutrition. I became a yoga teacher. You just sort of start hoarding trainings mm -hmm. so that you feel like you know how to help people. And this is circa roughly when? <laughs> circa, that's a great question. The journey was throughout medical school and residency, but mostly in like the early 2000s. Okay, so yeah. not super, nothing is super mainstream and part of the normal conversation at that point. Oh, I don't think I was modalities. like that groundbreaking. Like there weren't a lot of MDs studying acupuncture, but you know, there were a handful. Mm -hmm. I had role models to look up to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then you decided to just kind of make the make the leap? Yeah. Well, I never knew what it was all going to look like, which I think is helpful for people out there trying to figure out, you know, what path am I on? What is this? How is this all going to come together? You look at the people that seem to have figured it out. You're like, oh, you always knew. And nobody has that kind of foresight. I was just lost and treading water in my training and studying things that felt true for me and no idea what it would look like ultimately. And then I started practicing out of residency. And even then I was figuring it out on the ground. At this point now, I see how it all comes together. And Basically, it's I use a little bit of all of these different modalities with every treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's really just someone comes in the room. What do we do to figure out how to help them shift to a state of balance and where they feel well? So that's kind of my definition of a holistic psychiatrist. Basically, it means a rebellious psychiatrist. Totally. Yeah. Rebellious psychiatrist. I know it's funny. It's like this whole area of functional medicine now is just exploding. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? I mean, yeah. I think I know the answer, but why do yeah, you think? I'm feeling like a little, like <laughs> feeling like, what would be the right word? I'm going to say some risky things. I think it's sort of the way medicine should be, period. Yeah. It's, it's once you, it's, I think of it like a magic eye poster. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So the idea with functional medicine is you're addressing a problem at the root. You're resolving the root cause of something rather than simply suppressing the symptom with a Band-Aid. Once you start to understand like, well, yeah, Shouldn't that be all healthcare? Right. But it's not actually. Conventional medicine is completely full of different ways of suppressing symptoms with no recognition of what might be out of balance at the root or no attempt to address that. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's less money to be made that way, honestly. I mean, I, I say yeah. that all the time and I hate sounding like such a cynic because obviously there are things about conventional medicine that you know are wonderful and can't be replaced. And you know, God forbid you're in a car accident, like meditation and ashwagandha is not going to help you. Yeah. But or <laughs> Well, it. could it? <laughs> just a little arnica. But yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it just feels like it just, it's so glaringly obvious that, you know, the money to be made doesn't lie in these, these types of practices. And that, that is what keeps perpetuating that piece of the industry. Yeah. Conventional medicine, when you look under the hood at all, it does make you very cynical. And I think it's confusing because there's a lot of good players in it. I went through medical school residency. I was nothing but surrounded by well-meaning, hardworking individuals who care about about people who want to help. Um, I think that there's maybe some bad players 
in the boardrooms of certain pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Somewhere there's some layer where people are like, here's how we make money at people's expense. But I don't see it happening on the on the level of physicians, mm-hmm. not most physicians. Yeah, I want to give them the benefit of that. Like, you know, it's the same thing with, oh, take a leap, but police officers. You know, I don't think that you go, go into it thinking like, you know, for I want to, for the wrong reason. Yeah. I think you genuinely mm. want to help people, right? You want to like be like the hero mm. and the savior as a policeman and you like help people and you rescue kitties. You know, I think it's the same thing. I think you go into like medical fields thinking like, I want to fix people. I want to help them feel better. Yeah. I'm going to say that I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and say that that is the yeah. vast majority of people. Like that is the reason that they go in, into that field. But yeah. Right. Well, it just makes you feel like it's the systems that are yes. then being, you know, th- that are set up to kind of create that like divergence when somebody ends up on the wrong path is because, I mean, even like what we learned from, you know, Sharon talking about like the cost of medical school yeah. and why doctors choose certain fields. Mm. It's because they have to make a living and <clears throat> right, they have to pay back their, they have to pay back their loans before they yeah. can even start actually earning a living. It's yeah. just yeah, and Erica, to your point about like the car accident, you do just use ashwagandha. I think that it's all a matter of discerning at this point, because it's not to say throw out the whole right. baby bathwater of conventional medicine. It's fantastic if you have a heart attack, if you're in a car accident. There's no place I'd rather be than somewhere squarely in the United States and getting this kind of medical treatment. Right. But we and it sort of it developed as this really heroic intervention that can manage really acute crises. But then now we try to apply that to everything, one size fits all. And it's a really bad fit for chronic degenerative disease. Right. It's, a, it's, a chronic, it's a bad fit for chronic inflammation. And that's actually what most of us are faced with these days. Right. And that applies even to all of mental health too. Right, which is fascinating. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's really what we want to highlight with you. The mental health conversation in general, you know, I think we feel it just doesn't, it's starting to get more attention, which is obviously so encouraging because there's like, an element of just like secrecy and shame, I think, that really just needs to be broken down. Mm-hmm. And the, the connection between the body and the mind, which obviously is your area of focus. And today we want to speak specifically about anxiety. Yeah. Why, is anybody anxious these days? No, I'm not. Never. Okay. I don't know anybody <laughs> I, that I've is either. I've never seen an anxious patient. Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah. Well, what do you think <laughs> you see up. the most of? Like what anxiety. It, it is just anxiety. <laughs> yeah, it it's just anxiety. like blanket, like... I have anxiety. What does that mean? Mm. Like, what does anxiety look like for most people? I have anxiety. It's miserable. Help me. Yeah. Or is it also like, something's wrong with me. I don't even know what it is. And then you're like, it's anxiety. No, usually actually people are very good at self-identifying. Really? Occasionally you'll see somebody blocked about it. Honestly, I think I'm a little bit blocked about my own anxiety. Yeah. You know, people who don't identify, blocked about it. Yeah, it, it took me until I was recently in a situation where I was very anxious about something. And I witnessed myself asking like 10,000 questions and seeking reassurance. And I stood back and I thought, okay, I always see my patients with these behaviors. And I think I struggle to identify with my patient's anxiety. And then it was like light bulb moment. Like here I am, I'm squarely in the mm-hmm. thick of anxiety right. right in this moment. But I guess yeah. that's the, and like, is it safe to say that on some level, pretty much everybody has at least moments, if not ongoing? I mean, yeah, it's no totally, one is untouched by anxiety. It's totally in the range of how humans are designed to be able to respond to a situation. Like it's an adaptive 
response that we have. It's our alarm signal for get yourself out of the situation. It's not safe. Something's not right here. And then there's certainly people on the surfer dude end of the spectrum who are like, it's all good. But, but even he's got to be anxious about not catching that wave at <laughs> yeah, some point. Sometimes. I think he might be just in a total flow state, but um, all the time. But I think that for a lot of us and, and these days, all of us running around in places like New York City, there's just so much anxiety. So do, do you see a therapist? No, I do a lot of energy work. So what I found, I used to do talk therapy in medical school and that was great. And I recommend it broadly. Mm-hmm. But for me now, I get more out of a more nonverbal approach. So I do a lot of craniosacral, Reiki, acupuncture, energy work. Um, and a lot of my own practices, like meditation practice. You yeah, seem Reiki super is, chill. I just want to say, like, it's your all energy is. Yeah. I know. I mean, it really—it's like, all an act. That's what people say to me all fucking time, and I'm like, you don't understand. They're like, you seem very calming. Actually, it was like the last person we had an interview with. She was like, you're very calming. I was like, you have no idea what's going on just beneath the surface. It's funny. No, it's actually not an act. This is this is my temperament, but but I think there probably is a little bit of a disconnect between how I read, like how I sit in a room yes. and the, the sort mm-hmm. of the voltage going on upstairs. Yeah. I think I have the same, yeah. I have the same issue. <laughs> I, I don't think know. mine's just out in the open. Yeah. I think yours is pretty it's much out there. Yeah. You're not supposed to agree with me. You're supposed to encourage. No, no, but, but, I, know you, but I know you quite well. <laughs> that just so, makes me feel like shit. Just I'm just so you know. Why does that make you feel bad? <laughs> because I don't want to be the person that like you can spot across the room and be like, oh, she's super wound tight. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be that person. I'm not from across the room. I'm right here. I'm like two feet from you. <laughs> so not making it any better. Well, and I think like, let's ask bigger questions of why do we not want to be that person? I think that yeah. there's some so deep systemic right. misogyny to that, yes. like the sort of the high strung woman. I think that if we're just going to go there, I think that women are often the ones subsidizing other people's chillness. Like we're making sure everything's going okay. And I do do that. Yeah, I take care of everybody around yeah. me. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe there's nothing left for me. Uh-huh. And, and then I think that we live in a really weird time where I think our anxious people are sometimes like our feelers. They're our artists. They're the ones who are sensing. And so I really admire in many ways the people that are most viscerally off balance as things in our climate, things in our geopolitical arena, as that gets mm-hmm. weirder, yeah. the people that are really off balance from that, I mean, it's suffering. It's hard to be the people off balance from that. But I look at that as, thank goodness we have you. You are oh, feeling see, it for all of us. Yeah. That's hey, no, I feel it too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just feeling it inside. It's just a few, li- I'm just masking it, but a little bit. <laughs> Fair. All right. But yeah, no, and I, I, I think that's, that's a really, that's a really interesting way of looking at it actually, is mm. that those are like the, the people that are sort of just the receptive ones totally. or the receptors totally. or, and, and it's kind of maybe flowing through a little bit more and then manifesting on the outside. But I guess to your point that you just made, when I say I don't want to be that girl in the room, like I just basically defined what it is that I'm trying to like myth bust, which is like, there shouldn't be shame around this. Yes, yes. And so shame yes. on me. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> very super Actually, meta. can we sidebar on yep. shame around mental illness? Yes, yeah. please. So it's a beautiful aspect of like all things millennial and whatever is even the generation younger than millennial that there is, a, I think, a decent amount of less shame. There's more transparency. There's more mm-hmm. authenticity and vulnerability. It's happening on the main stage of Instagram. You see it like it's mm-hmm. happening in real time. People are more open about mental health issues. And thank God, this mm-hmm. is like so overdue that we used to have a time where it's like, depression, you right. know, that you'd be ashamed of that. It's just so ridiculous. She went to a spa. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think that um, I worry sometimes that 
less stigma means more quote unquote access to mental health care. And sometimes that makes me cringe a little bit because it often just means more access to being super medicated. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's not that I want the stigma to stick around, but I want more awareness of the menu of options of how people can address mental health imbalance. Well, do you think also less stigma suggests more self-diagnosis that's not even real? Like, I'm not too worried about that. There's something like too, like the patriarchal medical thing of like, let me do the diagnosing, not you. You know, I think that our diagnostic statistical manual in mental health, the DSM is like, a. let's just say, I think it's somewhat of a, maybe corrupt is too strong of a word, but it is designed to sell drugs. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really think that that's a better option than people at home saying, well, here's how I feel. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. To me, if someone comes into my office and says they feel depressed and anxious, I'm a little bit like game over. I'm not really going to get into the nitty gritty of like, well, is this technically like, you know, what version of depression or is this an adjustment disorder? Like it's less important because that whole diagnostic way of thinking is not very hopeful anyway. And I'm very hopeful in how I approach mental health. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's all adjustment disorder. It's all just a not otherwise specified, unspecified mood disorder or anxiety disorder. And and I just want to get to the bottom of what's causing it so that we can get someone feeling like it's not taking over their life. Right. So what do you think about this period of time? I'm just going to go back to talking about women for a moment. Women. But, you know, women... (laughs) I wish they'd cheer up. <laughs> you know? It's like, Jesus, just smile rel- a little. You know, you know? just relax. Just I love it when people you tell me better to relax. Smile. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just this, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's high enough postpartum depression, the blues, that yeah. sort of moment. How do you approach that? Mm-hmm. Because it is, you know, it happens and there's just so much around yeah. it. Um, and I feel like there's, in our culture, is a big problem. Yeah. I think in so many other cultures, you know, you're not left alone like for six weeks yep. after you give birth. Like mm-hmm. the mother in law, whoever it is, they come and they stay with you and they're like right next to you. Right. It literally takes a village. Here, yeah. And I think it's so much for that specific reason, right? It's like, this is not just physical support. This is like, this is mental and emotional support for someone who has just had this crazy hormonal shift Mm -hmm. and dump and like identity crisis, Mm -hmm. like everything else that comes along with having a baby. Um, But in this culture, it's just sort of like, oh, how cute. Like you have a baby and there's no more focus on you. And you're just sort of like sitting there like a deer in headlights. And I think so many people don't A, know what they're feeling and they don't know the extent to which it might, need to be addressed. And sometimes it passes, but I think there's, you know, a lot of people who who need support and and I don't know, I just wanted to get your take on that. Okay. So yeah. I'm like, I feel like I'm in a bar fight right now. You need to like hold me back because I have about 10 million things I can okay. say. So I'll just speak in double time. <laughs> Everyone's listening to this in 1.25x. Exactly. Slow it down. <laughs> Slow it down. <laughs> I'm going to cover a lot of ground quickly. So um, where to begin? So first of all, there's the role transition. And, you know, there's the fact that we... Um, and, and men have a role transition as well. They go from being just a dude or just a husband. And then and this is a little bit of a heteronormative approach. Like, so let's say in in a, so if there's a father, there's less of a role transition. And that's, you know, you do become a father, but it's nothing quite like the woman that just gave birth. And the woman just gave birth. It's not just, you've gone from being someone without a person 
tethered to you, dependent on you, but now you're a mother, but also you, your body has changed. There's a way that the kid needs you. That's just, I think it impacts the mother more. And so the role transition is massive. We could talk about that alone for an hour and a half, but we won't. So we'll just put that as a major factor. It takes a village thing. We're so backwards right now. It's like, we, it absolutely takes a village, not only for the comfort and the support and for people to take turns um, with the baby, soothing the baby to sleep in the middle of the night, but also the wisdom that's passed down, the reassurance, the, hey, try this hold if the latch isn't working, hey, right. try this. Um, we just are so isolated and lacking all of that yes. little micro moments of passive, casual interaction with other people that can be helpful in that moment. And then what we have is we have this isolation peppered with the wrong kind of company. So it's almost like people showing in a little bit more for their benefit and their one-off guests. And so it's almost mm-hmm. like, not only are you like walking around unshowered, topless. So now you're, host, now now you're hosting, hosting, right? It's just like... <laughs> And be a deer and, and make some tea and, and you should smile more. And mm. so um, so then you're suddenly hosting. And also it's a little bit like you feel like you should put on airs. You should almost have an appearance of like, look at me, such a glowing goddess um, right. in motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's shame around like the real story and no one's being that upfront about the real story. So that just perpetuates other people thinking, well, my real story is weird if everyone else mm-hmm. is saying, hey, it's great. I love it. I'm so in love. And ambivalence, like we can embrace ambivalence. I'm sorry to be such a Jewish psychiatrist, no, but ambivalence. Yes. Like, so you can be so in love. You can think this is the most meaningful thing in my world. And then a minute later, you're like, you know what? I question all my life choices, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and you can have those feelings and it doesn't mean you're a bad mother. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you should necessarily go on medication. It just means like if you flow with it, it's water-like, like all these things flow in. There's one wave that's, I'm overwhelmed with love and awe and inspiration at my child. And the next mm-hmm. minute there's a wave that's, this is really hard and I'm at my breaking point. There's the nutritional component. This is the one I think flies under the radar with postpartum issues. Mm. So you just grew a baby in your stomach and then you went through labor, often with a lot of bleeding. And then you might be lactating, which is in Chinese medicine, they would call one drop of breast milk, like 10 drops of chi. So like, this is so much of your chi getting poured into the baby, which makes sense. You're like, now you grew the baby in your stomach and now you're basically growing the baby through your boobs. And because, you know, often they're exclusively breastfed. This is how this kid is growing and their brain is developing. That's all your nutrition. And we are not A students at being nutritionally replete as it is, just as modern people. It's hard to do a good job at the nutritional scavenger hunt on a day-to-day basis. And that gets a lot harder when you're growing another person who's taken all the good stuff from you. So I think so much of postpartum is just a massive nutritional depletion. Mm -hmm. And your brain is like, hey, I don't have the building blocks to operate properly here. And so, and then you don't, as the mom, do not have the time, energy, ability to be whipping up like a perfect whole 30 meal for yourself. So we, part of lacking the village is lacking the circle of generally women who are going to be preparing these healthy, hot, nourishing meals and just handing them to you and saying, here, mama, have some food. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, okay. Erica's like, and on that note, like I said, never having kids. Exactly. (laughs) I can have anxiety all by myself. I don't need some kid to deplete me. No, um, I, but so I, I actually do want to like move it away because I think everything that you said is so valuable when you're speaking in the context of that postpartum experience, but it's also equally, I, I think it resonates exactly the same way. Like we deplete ourselves in other ways that yes. have nothing to do yeah. with 
you know, infants or anything else. Right. So um, isolation, it's right. the malnutrition. So, okay. Yeah. So before, we, I mean, I want, obviously let's like dig into the recommendations, but even before that, like, can you actually just define in super simple terms? Like how do you define anxiety and how do you define depression? Because I think that a lot of people assume that it doesn't apply to them because of whatever sort of misunderstanding of their own definition that they mm, have. So mm-hmm. in your view. Mm, yeah, I'm like the worst at these things. So anything that's like you could Google, I'm like very bad at, at doing a better job than that. But basically, here's how I think of it. Um, anxiety is this experience of unease where things feel a little bit alarming. And I really think it's, you know it when you see it. And for some people, yes, it can be somaticized. It can kind of be in their body like they just have stomach aches or migraines and some would say, no, you're anxious. But that's less important to me than if someone is having the subjective experience of feeling anxious, that's anxiety. There are a lot of subsets of anxiety. People can have obsessive compulsive disorder. They can have post-traumatic stress disorder, phobias, social anxiety, um, panic attacks. Um, These are all technically forms of anxiety. Um, But basically it's this feeling of unease and it's having an impact on your quality of life and your day-to-day functioning. And is something like, worry or sort of like I was reading something saying like there's kind of a constant monologue of questions in your head at all times Mm -hmm. about like what if basically yeah so that's kind of textbook they would say excessive worry is you know one of the diagnostic criteria of generalized anxiety disorder but I also think that there's a spectrum of just like a normal human spectrum where some people have more of a tendency to worry yeah and that doesn't make you an anxious person, you're just a worrier or is it? Well, I guess the question always becomes, does this change management? And I think that if it is impacting your quality of life, then Mm -hmm. it changes management. Then we want to do something about it. But if you're out there listening to this and you're worried, you're a worrier, but you don't really care. And it's not really like, it's not a buzzkill in your life and you're kind of doing okay. Then I'm not here to say like, no, you should come in and see me ASAP. I think that you can, you can be happy and normal and fulfilled and, and be on worry. the worry end <laughs> yeah. of the spectrum. It's a very it's very similar to sort of attempting to, to define alcoholism, mm. right? It's kind of like whatever. There is no real definition for alcoholism because it's so individual. The answer is you have to define it for yourself. So if one drink is too much for you, like one drink a month is too much for you, then that is your that is your level of tolerance. Like that that is alcoholism right. to you, right? Yeah. When it starts to interfere in your right. life, it's like the yeah. sort of management. It's so interesting because I feel yeah. like I am a, I wouldn't say worrier, but I like to- I thought you were going to say an alcoholic. No, we all know that. <laughs> no, I like to um, I like to play out scenarios just endlessly. And I know it's probably not the healthiest thing in the world, but I also, I don't, I, I find it helpful to anticipate potential outcomes in different situations. And I think that sometimes that translates to worry for people. But for me, it just translates to like, how my brain works. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like, I, it, for some reason, this is reminding me of the phone. It's like a tool that can, you can use it to enhance your life or it can sort of get the best of you and start driving the show. Like our tendency to overthink and to anticipate and be hypervigilant, you can use that as a tool to better your life. I think that it is a sign of intelligence. I think that it's built into our genome because our ancestors, the ones who were like, wait a second, something doesn't feel right about the situation. I'm going to be hypervigilant. I'm going to anticipate all the potential negative consequences. Right. Like they're the ones that went on to have us. Right. So, right. Okay. <laughs> we're all like, I don't see any problem with that leopard coming around the corner. You know? right. So it's all good. Bye, Hang them. 10. <laughs> like, I don't anticipate him being hungry. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he should yeah. smile more. Um, <laughs> she, she leopard. You know, I, I think you, you, we can make peace with and honor this aspect of ourselves. It's, bit, it's built in, it's hardwired, and it's part of what keeps us safe. It helps us survive. But you want to be in like a healthy dance with it. You want to mm-hmm. be you want to find some peaceful relationship to that hypervigilant tendency. Hmm. That makes sense. Play that scenario out. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so getting back to the the actual definition and what it means to to be, I don't know, diagnosed with anxiety. It's just, it's a very confusing, just personally for me. I see a therapist. I've Mm -hmm. seen a therapist for years and years. Mm -hmm. And she's constantly telling me I have anxiety. And I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I think it's just, it's one of these things that I'm like, I think I'm a pretty relaxed person. I'm an Aquarius. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Everyone's constantly telling me how chill I am. But I've had this, this thing that's been happening since I had a baby, at like kind of like a light switch since I had my second kid about almost two years ago now. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a problem breathing. <laughs> so she's already giving me the look like, no, oh yeah, girl, that's, that's not that look. That's anxiety. <laughs> so, I, so I've been like, I can't even tell you how many specialists I've gone to. Mm. I've seen, like, I thought it was I also it was a raging a hypochondriac. Let's well, that I will admit. I'm fully aware that I have a subset of anxiety. Okay, <laughs> okay, 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 so that is that's real. But I, I've seen like every expert in, under the sun. But I thought it was just something very mechanical. Like I be. thought I had it was just like diaphragmatically like wrong. Something was very off. Like I thought I had a herniated diaphragm from like my stomach was shoved up there. I thought like everything. I've seen a pulmonologist. She's like, you don't have any blood clots. I've got, I've been scanned, like literally everything. You had a visceral massage. I had a visceral, Mm. tons of visceral manipulation, Mm. Um, just like acupuncture, kinesiology, chiropractic, pulmonology, like just literally I've checked a lot of boxes. GI, had an endoscope, like, I, I mean, because it's all connected, right? It's all right there. So he, so- my my three doctors now in the past two months, my gynecologist, my gastroenterologist, my therapist have all agreed. They're all out having drinks right now. Talking they're, about like, you. they're like, I can't believe how much she's been paying like, us that to tell her putting our kids through college. <laughs> totally. But all three of them. So when you hear finally from your gynecologist, when you're like explaining your symptoms of not being able to breathe and why, and you're like, mechanically, I think my diaphragm is stuck. She's like, oh, honey, you have anxiety. Okay. I was, <laughs> wait, so I said, yeah. but wait, I was like, it happened so like a light switch after I had my baby. She's like, well, you know what's really stressful? Having your second baby. <laughs> She's like, even okay. your vagina has anxiety. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now I'm ready for uh, your, okay. now I'm really I know. I feel like you're about your- to burst forth with so much information. <laughs> I can't wait. I want it. Okay. I'm in another bar fight. So the thing <laughs> is, hold me back. So first of all, the deep systemic misogyny in our medical system, which by the way, comes also from our female doctors, there is a tendency to just say, oh, you know, we used to call it hysteria Mm -hmm. and now that's not PC. So Mm -hmm. now we say you should take Prozac. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's basically you're anxious, you're depressed. You know what? You're under a lot of stress. Yeah, having kids is stressful. So take this medication. The problem to me, the fundamental problem here is that 
anybody trained in a conventional way, there's a real lack of imagination and there's a lack of asking why and there's a lack of answering maybe. So um, I learned this in medical school when I was on my surgery rotation and uh, we had a case of appendicitis. We were doing the surgery and I remember just like this terribly annoying little third year med student. I was like, why do people get appendicitis? And I just remember the surgeon turning to me and saying, we don't ask why. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm going to end up as a holistic psychiatrist. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, we ask why. Like, fuck yeah, we ask why. Like, we don't understand everything about health. We understand an infinitesimal amount of health. So it should be mostly the question why. Doctors, conventionally trained doctors do not answer maybe. When you come forth and you're like, here's what I'm experiencing, this, this, and and this. Could there be something going on with my diaphragm? Could it be structural? It seems related to having kids. What a good doctor should say in that moment is maybe. And then what they offer you is the gift of, I went through a decade of training to understand a lot about the human body. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let all those gears turn in my brain to think, what could be happening here? Instead, what happens is like we get so squashed in conventional medicine. You have 15 minutes with the patient. You have to solve the problem. That basically means Xanax. And you don't have the time or the spaciousness or even the confidence to say like, let me explore and think about the possibilities here. So you just think, nope, never learned that, never read it in a textbook. What I did learn is that every woman should be on Prozac. And so that's the answer we get. Mm -hmm. You kind of want to take yourself out of the conventional world. I've got a guy for you to see, but I think there's a lot that can, I think there's so much maybe going through my mind right now about what could be happening with your breathing. Your Mm -hmm. whole rib cage reorganizes when you get pregnant. Um, And then your diaphragm can definitely get kind of into these pathologic holding patterns for various reasons, stress, Mm -hmm. trauma, um, birth itself. And you want like a good osteopath. You want someone really enlightened about the body who can help. You just actually Mm -hmm. had a shift in your diaphragm. I don't know if you noticed that with that deep breath. Because I can't breathe. So you're no, you're tuned it gets into stuck. it. Oh yeah, yeah, it's like constant. It's constant. This is why I've seen so many specialists because so, uh, let's yeah. just pitch him on here. So yeah. Olivier Bros. <laughs> okay, um, Olivier, B-R-O-S, I'm coming to you. And he's <laughs> he is my go-to diaphragm whisperer. Really, and he <gasps> can really. Oh my god you know, just shifted. I certainly had to have my diaphragm shifted after I went through really serious grief. I suddenly lost a family member and I was, as he puts, he's French. So he's like, when you experience a surprise, and I think he meant like a shock. A (laughs) surprise. Um, Surprise. So yeah, surprise. And so when that (laughs) happens, things can can really get caught. And so mm-hmm. um, he's really good at releasing that. So that'll be helpful. But you generally, when you're not getting satisfying answers in the conventional world, take yourself out to the world of the wackadoodles like me because they're the ones who are going to actually explore with you the possibilities of what might be going if on. If you are body. a wackadoodle, I am totally I, on the crazy train. There's some like, great wackadoodles out there. I know. Sense to me. Yeah, yeah, because I've seen, you know, I've seen some pretty far, you know, I don't know. I guess those who have given me that straight answer of just like, it's anxiety and I've written it off. Right. Are the most like off. firmly Wacky seated. Wacky will in, never say that. No. Yeah, because anxiety no. is actually not an answer. Like that's not a diagnosis. There's no blood test. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, so this is my, this is the, the point that I was making right. going back to sort of like, well, what is the definition of anxiety? It's like, well, for me, I'm like, you know, I, I have to say like, things are okay. Like, so this is like the conversation mm-hmm. I have with my therapist. I'm like, every time she's like, you have anxiety. I'm like, yeah, I got a lot of shit on my mind, but like, right. and I, and I do have concerns, but like, 
in the grand scheme of things, like I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm pretty set up. Like things are not so bad for me. Right. You probably um, have anxiety around the fact that you have this breathing issue that has no, not been like, solved. No, it's like, well, if I and, can't breathe, that induces anxiety. Right. Yeah, that's backwards. what I mean. Like, so it's exactly. creating anxiety. That's so not the root cause. Exactly. There's right. a two-way I'll go tell them. direction Thank you. here. <laughs> so anytime you're not feeling like you can take a, a, breath. a breath. So there's a two-way street of communication between the diaphragm and the brain. Typically, we think of it as when I'm anxious, my breathing becomes more rapid and more shallow. But there's... Another direction to this communication, which is when your breathing is more shallow or more rapid, then, and if it's shallow, it pretty much has to be rapid to properly oxygenate your body. Right. Then that sends information up to the brain. It says, we're anxious. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even if we're not. And that's why breathing exercises, which aren't necessarily the whole solution for you individually, but breathing exercises are a wonderful short circuit. They sort of exploit mm-hmm. the fact that the communication is two-way. Mm-hmm. So if you can allow yourself to slow down your breathing, take deeper di- diaphragmatic breaths, and even extend the exhale longer than the inhale, mm-hmm. it sends yeah. this transmission up to the brain that says, we're chilled out. Right. And then your You're brain is like, really? Like- we are? Okay, I guess we are. Right. That's like twice the length the exhale yeah, is supposed exactly. to be than the inhale. Yeah, but really anything before, longer. Yeah. I feel like when you tell anxious folks, like it should be exactly two X. Right, and they're like, know, how many seconds was it? No, yeah. literally, yeah, then I start counting. <laughs> yeah. But I, so but, anything so, longer and you don't do it so much that it becomes counterproductive. You allow, right. but you don't force it. Right, because that is so counterproductive. But <laughs> I will. this is the last thing I will say about my breathing saga which I could just- Which we're going to have a whole other episode. We could have a whole other episode on at this point, seriously. So I've been seeing, I started to see a neuromuscular um, therapist Mm -hmm. and they work a lot with like kids who have like cerebral palsy. Like, so he, he, you know, he was like, oh, we're for whatever reason, people like you, we're like the last resort. They find us, it's like their last resort. And I came in and he was just looking at, you know, I'm standing in front of him topless. Like, I mean, I had a bra on, sorry. So he was like- (laughs) So that was a weird visual. That was I just such got a weird myself. visual. <laughs> so it was just sort of like, I was like, I have to take my shirt off. He's like, I have to see your, your lungs. Like, I want to see what's going on. He was just like, oh, in two seconds. He's like, yeah, you're, you're it's your diaphragm. He's like, there's nothing to hold on to. Your ribs are splayed out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all oh, these people are telling me he's, I have anxiety. He's like, they're idiots. He yeah. literally just said yeah. they're idiots. Yeah. So they're really, really well-trained really credentialed, impressive, prestigious people mm-hmm. that are just in this moment in their lives, they've lost their imagination. Yeah. <clears throat> and they are not giving full credit that patients know what they're experiencing in their bodies. Right. And yeah. it's not a thoughtful response. It's mm-hmm. kind of just that catch-all of, yeah. oh, it's anxiety. And so with that, like not to diminish actual anxiety because that's that's so unfair, right. I think. To just like assign that to you as though it's just like something to kind of casually throw away when in fact what you're dealing with is quite substantial and anxiety mm. is quite substantial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So should we segue into all things? Yes. Like the holistic approach. Yeah. So yes. How do we fix because, it? Like, Let's fix yes. It. Because yeah. the so fine. You you now told me I have anxiety. So what is the next step for me? Then? Right. Yeah. You know. Well, the person who told you doesn't have the answers. No. But I think that when I when I'm meeting someone with anxiety, what's going through my mind is that there, what we're typically thinking about with anxiety, it's very like neck up. We're thinking about thought patterns and cognitive distortions and 
your, your childhood and trauma. And I think all of that's meaningful. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT is focused on these automatic thoughts that we have and cognitive distortions and anxiety. You'll typically see things like all or nothing thinking and jumping to conclusions and catastrophizing and all this sort of like runaway train that our brain does sometimes. Um, and that's all well and good. And CBT can be pretty effective on what I think is a little bit of a surface level, but it can be pretty effective at saying, here's the habit, here are the habits that your brain gets into. And let's just kind of change those habits through practice. And, um, and then you can have different habits and that can start to feed down into the body. That's fine. You want to say something about well, that? Well, what is the practice? It's a lot of things. It's catching yourself when you're having automatic thoughts and um, sort of challenging them and saying so like, hard. that's actually illogical. And you know, for all the times that you've been afraid of having a panic attack in this kind of situation, how many times have you actually had a panic attack? Right. Okay, one for every 10 million times you've been afraid of it. So the odds are you're not going to, it's that kind of thing. Um, a subset of CBT is exposure res- response prevention. So you actually start to kind of build in these challenges. You sort of almost go straight to the heart of darkness. You do what you're most afraid of mm-hmm. and you see that you get this experience of self-efficacy. You see that you can do it. You can take the subway. You can do take the elevator. You can start to mm-hmm. face the fear and, mm-hmm. and have the experience of, oh, I, I was able to survive that. I like referring out for CBT. I don't like doing it, but it's, it's helpful. That being said, when I see anxiety, I think there is almost in all cases of anxiety, some degree of a physical basis for it. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the most exciting corner of managing anxiety because it's low hanging fruit. You can change it pretty readily. And then sort of the seven years on the couch is no longer necessary. Mm -hmm. Like it's wonderful. I love dredging up like childhood memories. It's all a beautiful practice, but it's not necessarily counterproductive to me. I think I I feel like it's important to understand the root of certain feelings and why you are a certain way. But mm-hmm. I also feel like people in my life, you know, can tend to dwell on that and fixate on it. It's like, yeah. you're not actually moving anything forward. And you'll see sometimes, so it really just depends, but sometimes you'll see someone in really good therapy, really good therapy, you'll see someone develop a lot of insight, and a lot of self-awareness. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see someone sort of get even more entrenched in being a sort of a neurotic person. And they're almost using therapy as like a confessional. It's almost like you're like, oh, I'm being so neurotic, but I'm going to talk about it tomorrow on the couch. And it, it almost just perpetuates being in that state. You, you really want people to step back and evaluate, assess like, okay, you've been in therapy three months. Are you feeling better? You know, are you leaving sessions feeling better? Are you leaving sessions feeling worse? Mm-hmm. Um, you can leave sessions feel worse and it still be a good treatment, but mm-hmm. you need to step back at least every few months and say like, is this actually heading in the right direction? And sometimes it's not. So the physical basis, this is low hanging fruit. This is something that can be changed much more readily than seven years on the couch. Yeah. And um, it looks a little bit different for everybody, but there are some really common culprits. So that's usually where I'll start for anxiety. Yes, the common culprits. Common so let's, culprits. Have, let's have them. I'm going to start with the one that people haven't thought about. And then I'm going to talk about one that I always lose friends over this topic. Oh, okay. so, <laughs> so the first one that people haven't thought about, that people are like, oh, that's interesting. I could do that. Um, I don't lose any friends over this one is blood sugar. So blood sugar, conventional medicine has a bit of a one zero approach to blood sugar. It's basically like, oh, you're diabetic or you're not diabetic, end of story. Um, but that's not the case at all. And we're all in a constant symphony of how our body is managing our blood sugar. People with anxiety, I 
So if anyone has like experiences hanger or love someone who Oh my God, I hanger, get hanger. Yeah, yeah, me too. So anxiety is yes. sort of a variation on hanger. Um, blood sugar dips. It's basically a little bit of a, it's a mini emergency to the body. Your body is like, oh God, you know, I we need to go hunt. We need food. What if we don't get more food? So it has a little panic. And the way the body responds to a crash in blood sugar is that there's a series of checks and balances in the body to save your body from lacking blood sugar. It basically means you, you pull the alarm cord and you secrete cortisol and adrenaline. That communicates to your liver to break down the storage of starch that we keep there um, called glycogen. And then that secretes glucose into our bloodstream and it saves the day. And our organs don't fail and we're alive and it's great. But it is a stress response in the body. Mm-hmm. So what had to happen for all of this was adrenaline cortisol. So we're left feeling a little bit like you just had a car accident. That's basically a lot of people are just walking around on a blood sugar roller coaster because our modern American diet is built on a bedrock of refined carbohydrates and rosé. And so we're all walking around on this blood sugar roller coaster. And every time the blood sugar dips, that can feel like anxiety. And we don't know to attribute it to a physiologic cause. So we just, then the stories rush in. Mm -hmm. Our narrative is secondary. This narrative swoops in and we're like, oh God, this is happening. And I need to remember to do this. And this thing doesn't feel so good at work. And but that's secondary. And actually, you might just need like a snack without sugar. In exactly. It. <laughs> so basis. Eat a nut. Jeez. Eat a nut. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's ways to address this. The definitive solution is to re-overhaul your diet to a real food diet that doesn't put you on a blood sugar roller coaster. And that's like a paleo or a real food or a whole 30 diet where you're actually getting adequate healthy fats and well-sourced protein and starch from starchy vegetables, plenty of vegetables. And you're just eating in this way that the body starts to um, have really stable blood sugar. A lot of people like keto these days. I don't like, I, I'm perfectly happy if a male patient of mine wants to dabble with keto. I think that a lot of men do really well with it. With women, it's a more complicated conversation. Mm-hmm. Some women do great with it. Some women, not so much. But that can be a blood sugar stabilizing diet. And then there's a hack that's not the definitive solution. But for my patients who are having panic attacks, who are anxious all the time, at first, I just want them feeling better immediately. I'll have them do something like a spoonful of almond butter or coconut oil or any other kind of source of fat or protein where they are now keeping their blood sugar stable throughout the day using this, like Mm -hmm. spoonful at regular intervals every few hours. So one upon waking, one before bed, and sometimes one- That's kind of my life anyway. Every few hours. Love it. (laughs) Just eat a nut. So um, that's a really nice hack. And I've had patients go from having multiple panic attacks a day to not having panic attacks just from From keeping their blood sugar stable. I mean, does it get any easier? No. I mean, if you don't just- delicious actually. At least- Try that yes, try. before you exactly. jump to the yeah, next level. It is safe. Yeah. It's inexpensive. Yeah. yeah. It only involves a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Pfizer makes no money off of this. That's the problem. Right. This, is this is not being taught in schools. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Justin's, on the other hand. I was going to say, this <laughs> rolling in it from all the anxiety out there. Yeah. And that has palm oil. So I have some mixed thoughts about Justin's yeah. packets. Not my pick. But. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. All right. So then, wait. What? So, what are some other hacks? Yeah. What okay. else we got? So, the one that I lose friends on is caffeine. Mm. <clears throat> I think we're done. It yeah, seems like yeah. we've, uh, oh, time, we've right? run out of time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh, so, um, I mean, I have yeah. to say, when I, I was know, going through I my know. last like experiment of testing out on myself and seeing what might work and whatever over the summer, and I did a big nutritional protocol, all of that. I'm not. I'm not good with caffeine anyway. I was on like 80 percent regular, 20 percent decaf. That was my ratio. Yeah. I mean, the other way around. Okay, yeah. 80 decaf, 20 regular. 
And I figured like that was, you know, that was going to be substantial just to get a little bit of like a start in the morning and not messing with my sleep, which was terrible. And when I removed that 20 and went 100% decaf, it made all the difference in the world. Yeah. I swear. There you go. I know. Listen, I've been decaf for, I I like I've done my, just from being pregnant, like I've Mm -hmm. been, you know, drug and alcohol free and caffeine free for like five, you know. A total like of them. pregnant yeah. nursing, all the rest. I didn't have any caffeine. I didn't have any like whatever. Mm. And I do notice a difference, but I have to say it wasn't that significant. Yeah. If I have a ton of coffee, I'll You're definitely super fun feel to it. Be around. I will feel like <laughs> yes, it will exacerbate. I just get like everything's a little edgy, right? Yeah. But like if I have like fifty milligrams of caffeine, which is pretty much what I take now, and it's so like dosed because it's like a packet, mm-hmm. it's pretty mellow. I have to say, but I feel when I take you know, if yeah. I push it. Yeah. So, but, so you're so saying you just cut it out altogether. Well, so everything with me is like a nuanced conversation. Yeah. So I, not necessarily. We're all different in terms of how we metabolize caffeine. Some people are rapid metabolizers. You know, you kind of know if you're one of those people, you can have the espresso at dinner and still go and to go bed. bed. Yes. Yeah. So we've seen those people who are like, are you crazy? I can do that. Wow. I, I can have an espresso at night and just be like, good night. You might be a rapid metabolizer. Some of us are the slow metabolizers. So um, like, yeah, if I have coffee, I'm on caffeine. I'm or sorry, if I have coffee, I'm on cocaine. And then I'm also jittery, wired, and it affects my sleep. Crabby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and everything in between. So you basically want to kind of know yourself, but not everyone who loves coffee is actually a rapid metabolizer. A lot of people are just addicted. It is mm-hmm. truly an addictive drug. Oh yeah. And um, I'm totally addicted. And it's a really, it reminds me of benzos in a way. It's like the loyalty is to the caffeine. You know, it's kind of like, don't take my coffee away. Right. You know, when people are like, it's my clonopin, my, clonopin, my yeah. coffee. Whenever mm-hmm. someone puts the word my, my in front, you're talking about an addictive substance. <laughs> wow. That's my wine. Yeah. You know? that's, um, that's my wine. Yeah. <laughs> is that my wine that you're drinking? <laughs> Did you pick up my wine glass? <laughs> so, so I think that my kombucha, oh my God, the Oof. wellness addiction. So basically... I invite anybody who's struggling with any degree of anxiety to at least do the experiment. Yes. What well, does your life feel like on zero caffeine? Yes. And if that experiment could be accomplished in a week, that'd be great, but it can't be because no sudden movements around caffeine. It is such a real withdrawal, caffeine withdrawal. So mm-hmm. you want to go gradually. And I, I went from, you know, I had an on again, off again, love affair with coffee throughout my adult life. Then I was down to one cup a day of green tea throughout times like nursing and all of that. And then I went from a cup a day of green tea to nothing over the course of a month. And I tried to go faster, but I would get these massive headaches. Mm-hmm. I'd be such a crab apple. It wasn't working. And so I took a month to go down like little by little until I was down to a sip and then mm-hmm. nothing. And my life got better off caffeine. And yeah. it took me well over a decade to give that experiment a try. So how did it get better? What did you notice immediately? For me, it's weird. Um, as we've discussed, I don't necessarily identify as anxious, although maybe that's worth calling into question. But um, I sleep better and mm. I sweat less. It's so awkward. But, yeah. No, that's the one thing that I found. <laughs> yeah. I Caffeine, that's like the maybe the number one reason I would give it up is it makes me sweat. It's I'm like sweater. the coffee sweats. Yeah. I am a real yeah. sweater. Yeah. I know. And it's like Sexy really guys. bad when I drink Hot. caffeine. Yeah. And it's yeah. anything. I even was... I even had to quit kombucha because the caffeine content wow. in kombucha. Oh, wow. So my what about kombucha? Yeah. yeah. So. Your kombucha? You yeah, I had to quit my, my matcha. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for a 
delicious decaf matcha. I don't understand why it's that hard. Yeah, right. You would think someone is really trying to swoop into that market. Yeah. Okay. Duly noted. Um, so, but um, yeah, so I sweat less and I actually, and this is also perhaps a little bit TMI, but I always had a little bit of like urinary urgency or like bladder irritation when right. I would drink caffeine. It's a and that's just a thing of the past now. That's not TMI. That's super useful information. There yeah. you go. Yeah. So. Okay, Interesting. Okay, so anyone who's maybe confusing like incontinence <laughs> with um, or tiny bladder syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's medications for this now, of, right, course. of course. Yeah. So rather maybe. than going to the doctor and being told that you have some new diagnosis and right. you put on a nasty med, just quit the coffee. But do and then gradually. in turn, you will sleep better, which is also obviously excellent for yeah. any health issue. And for anxiety as well. Right. And then you'll just be directly less anxious because of less caffeine. So yeah. what do you do with people who are on whatever anti-anxiety medication and they want to get off of it? Yeah, so that's a beast. Yeah, that's so like a whole other episode. It it's is. a whole other episode. But let's there's, just have a little yeah, teaser. A dabble a little of teaser. it. Yeah, so yeah. there's increasing awareness around this issue now. For the most part, anybody conventionally trained was dismissing the whole idea of medication discontinuation with psych meds. They were saying, yeah, it's not a thing that's in your head. You can go off of this, take a week maybe. You know, they would do these little measly tapers. And then if you came back complaining, they're like, not my problem anymore, go away. When in fact, what happened here was an unwitting doctor started you on something. It, it was an iatrogenic addiction. Iatrogenic is a very fancy word to mean like your doctor caused this. And so iatrogenic benzodiazepine addiction, benzodiazepines are the medications like clonopin, and Xanax, Ativan, Valium. Um, and then even the SSRIs like Prozac, Lexapro, Celexa, Zoloft, Paxil, these are also not so much addictive, but the withdrawal is very difficult. Um, not for everyone, but frequently. And so what do I do when someone wants to get off of their medications? We take a deep breath together and we start a process. The first month is just readying their body for that process. So that's a really airtight, fantastic Whole30 diet where they're getting plenty of nutrients and they're not getting anything that's inflammatory um, so that they just start with like not that whole inflamed and nutrient depleted burden on their body, which makes this difficult process even more difficult. Yeah. So their body is ready. I'll usually have them off anything that gets them out of balance, like caffeine, like alcohol. And then we begin and we go super slowly. I taper about 10% per month and nothing's set in stone with that. So that's kind of the fastest we'll typically go. And if mm -hmm. someone needs to plateau for a little while, then we'll go even more slowly. Um, I don't love supplements. I kind of, they give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit, but around medication taper, I usually throw a lot of supplements at the picture because I think the brain just needs any help it can get in rebuilding neurotransmitters and receptors. And um, I think supplements have a role in that. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, a lot of focus on detox. Detox is an interesting term. It's like an unquestioned trendy term in some arenas. And then it's like so scoffed at and eye-rolled at in the conventional world. And I think the truth lies somewhere in between, but your body truly does have its own natural detoxification mechanisms in large part happening in the liver. And when you're getting off of a medication for whatever reason that really burdens the detoxification mechanisms in your body. So I like to support that. It looks a little different for everyone. Infrared sauna is kind of the nicest thing to mm. try to build into your life. Just and it's getting just so lovely. It's delightful. To sit and sweat like yeah. That. So that's a good option. Some people in the med discontinuation world swear by coffee enemas. It's like I've uh, had a coffee. I've given myself a coffee enema. How did that go for you? You self-administered a coffee enema? Yeah, I've self-administered many enemas. I did it at the Anne Wang Institute. 
And we did it every night. Which one? Oh, the Anwick Morris do. Yeah. 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 Um, they love their enemas. They do love <laughs> yeah. their enemas, man. Have you been there? <laughs> no, but I've read about so it. Wheatgrass, right? Yeah. So they do, um, it's all wheatgrass and rejuvelac and enemas mm-hmm. nightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like what you do before you go to bed. So what is the principle of a coffee enema compared to a regular enema? You know, every time I read about it, I'm like more mystified by it. The idea mm-hmm. is that it's stimulating this parasympathetic um, sort of node in your colon that's helping release a lot, but then it's also stimulating the gallbladder and the liver. So it's kind of helping disburden any sludge that backs up in your gallbladder. But I'm not even sure if I totally buy that. I think it's just a really very provocative enema to the colon. So you get out a lot. That's what I, the theory, that was my assumption. Yeah. But the theory is that the caffeine is more stimulating than just water, which in my yeah. understanding also does these things, but maybe yeah. not to the degree. I mean, coffee itself, we all have a little bit of that, like we've had that experience of you drink a coffee and it stimulates. Sure. So it's sort of even more directly stimulating. Okay. Stimulating a bowel movement for anyone who's wondering. Thank right. you. For anyone who's just to clarify here. there. I actually but, have no issue with squeamish just talking about all things. We talk about movement. poop yeah, all, no, the all the time. All the um, time. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the bowels, it's nothing to be, you should not overlook. Well, yeah, in case it's worth saying, like yeah. all health starts there. Uh, we were going to say, Truly. I mean, there's so much at this point that we're starting to understand about the gut and the bowels and the connection to your brain. Massive connection to anxiety. Okay. So yeah. let's, let's. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go there. So with the, with your digestive health, we're right now in a place where it is just we are being attacked from all angles in modern life in terms of the health of our gut. What we really want in our gut is like an old growth forest of beneficial bacteria and even some not so beneficial bacteria. You just want a diverse Just to keep the beneficial bacteria paying attention. Yeah, right. Exactly. Truly. Yeah. So you want them all in there kind of harmoniously living in this diverse ecosystem and you want diversity. And we, you know, you at this point have to go like deep into the Amazon to find anybody with like, like old school poop with old growth forest diversity of beneficial bacteria. <laughs> that is some heirloom poo right, right? there. <laughs> so now what we have in New York City in 2019 is we've been impacted by um, all the antibiotics that we took mm-hmm. in childhood when we had all those like ear infections because we ate dairy that we didn't tolerate. Mm-hmm. And then we um, eat food that, you know, our, our dairy itself is impregnated with antibiotics and our meat is. And then half of our crops are sprayed with Roundup where the active ingredient is glyphosate, which decimates our gut flora and also creates conditions for intestinal permeability, which is probably a pretty perfect storm one-two punch that's creating all this autoimmune disease these days because it's like you're creating intestinal permeability at the same time as eating the crops like wheat crops. So then it's leaking into the bloodstream and we're developing antibodies against gluten. Not all in our heads. It's actually not in our heads. I know. We were going to do a a whole episode on glyphosate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's happening. So, I mean, it could just be illegal. Like, how about that? How about that? Yeah. I know. That would be something. Do you imagine? Um, Yeah, but maybe, I don't know if Monsanto is too big to fail. Maybe our whole economy is wrapped up in that at this point. I know probably our government is. That's all correct. So, but so basically, and then, you know, we eat sugary foods. We're chronically stressed. We have all of these things that are impacting our gut flora. Not to mention going back to childbirth, like to create the perfect conditions for passing on old school, old growth flora or flora forest winter from your mom to the baby to the baby. There needs to be vaginal delivery without mm-hmm. antibiotics for group B strep. And then there needs to be nursing, which is like a really good food to um, promote the proliferation of beneficial bacteria in the baby's gut. So all of these things are just compromised by modern life. And so we all have this screwed up gut flora now. 
And that has a direct impact on anxiety in a number of ways. One of the ones that I think is most interesting that's not really being talked about enough is that I get the sense that our main neurotransmitter that helps us not feel anxious is called GABA. Yeah. It stands for gamma immunobutyric. I love talking about yeah, GABA, GABA here. Yeah. I just took two. Okay. <laughs> like and right before you walked she in the did. door. She was like, <laughs> so you're saying you're not anxious yet. <laughs> well, I'm trying to do the experiment, yeah. you know? I'm like, okay, well. Olivier Bros. Next up. So um, I think wait. that would be helpful. So basically, um, gamma immunobutyric acid, I think is synthesized by gut bacteria. And I'm not sure if that's true, but I, I get the sense that there's something to do with our gut flora and the synthesis of GABA. And I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I think, so uh, I get the sense that our gut bacteria is synthesizing or plays a role in synthesizing GABA. So all of our decimated gut floras these days, we're not making, we're not manufacturing adequate GABA. And that's part of why everyone is so anxious. Mm -hmm. So you want beneficial bacteria for many reasons. One of them is adequate GABA levels mm -hmm. in your body and in your brain. The other way that our gut flora is impacting anxiety is that it's, you know, an inflamed gut contributes to systemic inflammation yep. and systemic inflammation, your brain hears that and mm -hmm. it's a warning. It, it doesn't like to think, oh, my body is sick. So it thinks something's not right. We need to do something about this, but there's that alarm signal. So you, any systemic inflammation, most people's brains is going to interpret that information as a reason to feel anxious. And then an inflamed gut, intestinal permeability creates the conditions for things to leak into the bloodstream, which is even more provocative of the immune system. And then we start to have these neuroactive peptides leak into the bloodstream and that can have an effect on our brain. So things like gluteomorphin and casomorphin from gluten and dairy can cross the blood-brain barrier and have an effect on our brain signaling. And they're sort of like these little baby opiates. And so all of this is just kind of jacking up our mood, putting us in little highs and little lows, and all of this can contribute to anxiety as well. This is so fascinating. And also so incredibly like, I, I want to like shout from the rooftops, people who are feeling like, you know, meds or no solution is the solution because they just have to deal with it. And it's like, you could just start with like drinking some bone broth bone and broth. heal your gut yeah. and take some GABA ease, who should be totally sponsoring this podcast at this point, by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just, it's so fascinating and so like encouraging, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And the tricky thing is that it's not necessarily always easy to do it. So some people, it's really just like taking a good probiotic, eating more fermented foods and starchy tubers. Maybe you add in a little ghee, collagen, bone broth, glutamine, and you're good to go. And some people it's trickier. So um, for some people, you need to be working with a naturopath or a functional medicine doc and find out, is there dysbiosis? Do you need to treat SIBO? Do you need to treat a parasite? And then you start to re-inoculate Right, you need to establish your baseline first. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard work. You but, know, if you're already on meds, I have to say, it's like, you know, it's not, it's nice to say, uh, just do all of these things. But um, when people who are on meds, who are, who are living whatever kind of lifestyle they're living, right? And their diet is their diet and their habits are their habits. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough for people to go like, forget whether or not they want to come off meds, forget what their actual objective is. Like if you ask someone to go on like a whole 30 diet or clean up their diet or clean up their habits for three days, for yeah. a week, like so much that is just like, oh my God, some people, there are plenty of people out there who would rather say, just screw it. Yeah. I'm just, give me a yeah. pill. I'm done, man. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to eat what I eat. I'm going to drink what I drink. 
and I'm going to just take this pill because it's a pill and totally. isn't that easy. Totally. So there's a very different, there's a sure. lot of convincing that has to happen there, you know, and it's, it's only when people get to the point of no return, it's like their last ditch effort. It's like Ann Wigmore Institute. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone there was just like, mm, last stop. Last up, I took all the pills I could take. And they're not working anymore. Well, it's tricky because I don't, I don't take it lightly to ask someone to say like, just do a month. Of no, no, 30. I know, but worse. But I'm, you know, my reaction is like, look, like it's so easy, yeah. like just, just eat this and not that. I, I sort of blame like systemic factors. Like it is so hard to eat real food. It's such an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, but it sucks that that's what's hard. Like imagine yeah. if we yeah. lived in a world where the food was real food, like if that's just what the food available was. Um, so what I'm asking people to do is such an undertaking. And I don't blame people for thinking like, you know what, I give up on this. And yeah. I'm just gonna, you know what, like life is meant to be enjoyed and I want to drink what right. I want to drink and eat what I want to eat. I totally get it. I took seven months and traveled around the world and I'm very like super Portlandia, Gwyneth Paltrow about how I eat on a day-to-day basis when I'm living in New York. But when I'm in Hong Kong or Japan or Italy, I eat yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I trust the food there more and I feel better. And I get that experience of just eating just navigating the world and being like, oh, right. I'm hungry. Here's something. I'll right. eat that. <laughs> Could you imagine? It? It's so far from how we like interact so with food now. Show up with a uh-huh. stack of Pyrex containers anywhere oh I go. God. Kids' birthday parties. And I was like, no, don't worry. We brought chicken liver pate and kale. We're ready. Um, so, Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> don't touch the pizza. Um, I, I let my daughter and then she has a meltdown every time. It's crazy to me. We're going to sidebar on that for a second. It's yeah. crazy that we have this whole ritual around um, every weekend. You take your kids to a birthday party. It's they eat. Just- Load them up Total with sugar. poison. It's Not insane. Just like, let's call it what it is. Like it's there's crazy. food coloring. There's all these pesticides on it. There's poison. Yeah. And then we all go home to deal with our melting down children. And it's like traumatic level of like meltdown. And some are scratching their head as to why they could be having these meltdowns. Yeah. And and it's just like, can Fungy we not do this ritual? Like, <laughs> So, okay. Can I just sidebar to one idea? Because yeah. we're just going to make this a long ass episode. <laughs> because I'm not going to do this idea anymore, but I want it for this exact reason, because like I'm new in this parenting game too. I'm like, oh wait, what is this happening every weekend, guys? Like what if we order pizza one more effing time? Like, I don't know. I was like, does anyone in this room know how much glyphosate is in this flour? Uh, like literally, like I'm the the buzzkill with like- You're Debbie Downer. The mom group, party, yeah. right? And so I literally came up, I was like, I just got to come up with a pizza chain that is called Unicorn Pizza, where you are touting <laughs> glyphosate-free, non-GMO everything, and all of the flowers and all of the crust. It's just, it blows my mind. I would do well. So how often children eat pizza? And the the way that parents just kind of like, myself included, you know, you just you throw it all out the window. Like you kind of obsess over every detail, but then something happens where you're just like, eh, let's just order pizza. Yeah. But like, what the F is in that pizza? Like, shit ton of hormones in that cheese, ton of glyphosate in that flour. Like, can there mm-hmm. be one kid-friendly chain that I'm going to call unicorn pizza yeah. that is literally addressing all of these things? I mean, if, you know, I added up, I was like, how many slices of pizza is my kid at this rate going to eat by the time he graduates high school? It was like well over 3,000. Oh, geez. Yeah. Like, so it's just... Or you just <laughs> change the whole system of celebration and like whatever that article I found in Amsterdam, 
where they celebrate children's birthdays by every child getting a skewer of vegetables. Yeah. Oh. Well, Erica, <laughs> we're, not, we're not monsters. Or but I'm saying, like, <laughs> the kids there don't I'm even notice because that's all that. they've ever been exposed to. So. I'm like, yay, it's time for my vegetables. No, skewer. happy think, birthday. Yeah. Like, yeah. Kids actually, they are like, it's just our own they will eat what you drug give addiction yeah. projected onto them, right? My daughter, yes. like, I mean, I was extremely careful about all of this. And it's totally my husband showing up probably. Oh, it's fine. Well, <laughs> okay. it's not going to pick it up anyway. But He'll have something to add, I think. <laughs> okay. So, um, but so I was a monster about this. I read all of the all of the books and Nourishing Traditions and Ina May. And I was like, oh, didn't everyone get the memo that we're not feeding our kids poison? I was so naive. And so we didn't feed my daughter anything amiss for probably the first two years of her life. Then we traveled around the world and yep. she she's like, I only ate pasta in Italy. So she, <laughs> so then, but we got back to the States and now she's like a proper three-year-old and she's in school and she goes to birthday parties and now she's addicted to that stuff but she didn't know it existed before she would have been just fine never yeah. touching a cupcake same in thing. her life same thing it's the system it's like once they get into school it's over yeah, yeah. Um, so I do think there's something to be said around uh, this socially condoned addiction that happens with food, processed foods. So gluten, dairy, sugar, and pretty much all processed foods that I'm convinced have like flavor crystals added, they are all really these totally okay addictions. And you know, you can say like, oh, well, that person is addicted to heroin. That's bad. That's a real addiction. But this is just pizza. This is right. just a cupcake. Right. And this yeah. is an addiction and it's not as severe, but it is real. And I think that you see actually on, on some point on the spectrum, some real suffering that goes along with it. And I remember I walked by a woman, like this was a couple of years ago, and I just saw her in her car with like what looked like a binge. You know, she kind of like mm. had an array of food and she was stuffing in her face, like really mindlessly. You just saw the suffering. Yeah. This is somebody who has a shameful behavior of binge eating. Mm. Um, and like, you know, she's ashamed, not that she should be, like she feels ashamed of it and she's doing it in secret. And it is not a joy. Like, Food right. it's supposed to be pleasure. Is pleasure, right? So this was somebody who was just um who clearly had probably restricted the week before and now her body was in withdrawal from these drugs and now she just needed to replete it or else she was in withdrawal. Ugh, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Awareness. Awareness. First step. Yeah. Good Lord on that on that note. I know. I mean, there's but this is I think again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I feel like this is incredibly encouraging information and obviously can't be applied overnight, automatic, like quick fixes here and there. But, you know, I think our job and our goal with all of this is to at least empower people with information and just encourage what you were saying, like the experiment, just try and see, try something different and see how it lands. And then, and then, you know, if it doesn't work, then try something else, but at least just keep that experiment open. On a more hopeful note, I'll offer up one quick fix, which is magnesium supplementation. Mm-hmm. And if anybody with anxiety oh, yeah. is not already doing that, that's something to add into your What form system. do you... Magnesium glycinate. Okay. I'm open to magnesium three and eight if somebody prefers that. I find it to be just a little more expensive, not necessarily more effective. Glycinate is great. It's cheap. It's not rocket science. You can get a good magnesium glycinate from a lot of brands. Yeah. And then you want to take about 400 to 800 milligrams at bedtime. You that changed my life too. When yeah. I yeah. Taking um, I mean, the, we're all depleted in magnesium because our soil is depleted. So our food is depleted. So we are. And when you start to replete your magnesium levels, you improve headaches, migraines, menstrual cramps, anxiety, muscle tension, sleep, and you improve fertility. your lifespan. Fertility. So, and also chronic constipation. So it's really, it really is a tremendous magic. thing. To, and the only thing is like, you have to do a thing. You have to go buy a magnesium glycinate and you have to take the pills at bedtime, which God is a little forbid. bit of a pain in the butt, but it's, so um, worth it. it's doable. And, and it's available literally. You 
you can get it everywhere. Yeah. You can get it online. You can get it Cheap, at your local safe. CVS. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. My favorite point on the graph is an intervention that is inexpensive, not too invasive and no real risk and has high potential benefit. Yeah. Um, I mean, the squatty potty is probably the one that nails that demographic, <laughs> but that's sort of beside the point. Not really. Um, but I have magnesium. Two. I have like two at a travel one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you got to get the travel. The travel is I mean, you need it all the more when yeah. you're traveling. Yeah, yeah. True. So, yeah. And then like the final hopeful note on all things anxiety is that for people to be optimistic, it's like, this is manageable. Mm -hmm. You can actually change your body's physiology and your body is less likely to be tipped into a stress response. You can go through your life less anxious. And the thing we mentioned at the beginning is worth pointing out one more time, which is just that if people are anxious, that's not just a symptom to be squashed or to be eliminated through getting rid of caffeine. It's also something to listen to. It's mm -hmm. your body saying something's not right here. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of need couples therapy between us and our bodies. Mm -hmm. You want to listen to your body. You want to say, hey, body, what's up? Sorry, I've been a little MIA lately, not very present in this relationship. What are you telling me? And do you want to listen? Yeah. It's very easy to just cut it off at the neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, oh, my goodness. So. Well, thank you so much for this. This is really... This is amazing. Thank yeah. you so Thank you excited so much. to share Thank this information. You. Yeah. And you'd have to come back because we have so much other stuff to talk Sign about. Sign me up. We'll talk about Roundup next time. <laughs> I know. Seriously. I Yes. All right. Let's shut it down. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, can we? Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.